My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Our Sunday School. If you got your handout on the table there, you'll notice it's got a staple. It's going to be a good day. This whole series is going to have a staple, so it's just get used to the staple. We should start the hashtag love the staple. Just this way it's going to work. Um, so if you know where Obadiah is in your Bible, uh, go ahead and head that direction. If you don't know where Obadiah is, find the really long uh, prophets and turn slowly after you kind of get past those to the right. And once you see Amos, slow down even more because Obadiah is easy to miss. So last week we looked at the uh, introduction to Obadiah and the first nine verses, and this week we're going to look at the next seven verses. Um, so to very quickly review, uh, if you want to follow along in any of the materials that we have, if you're an electronics person as opposed to a, paper, a piece of paper person, you go to OurSundaySchool.com uh, and then click on the Read tab, and that'll show you all the resources that we have, and you can click on the, actually next to week two, uh, and uh, pull up any of the teacher or student notes. So, Obadiah, uh, we think, is somewhere before the Babylonian exile. So uh, there's a couple really big events in Old Testament history, and the Babylonian exile is one. Uh, Your study Bibles may have Obadiah anywhere from 850 B.C., which is what this chart has, all the way up to maybe even the first year of the Babylonian exile, uh, which I think is pure open hand, okay, no problem, Um, that If you have a Bible, and I don't think that anybody would seriously consider this, um, that shows Obadiah being written after the Babylonian exile, that's going to be a bit problematic because then it's no longer prophecy. It's just recording past tense history. Uh, But anywhere between uh, 850 and 586 is is generally accepted where we are in the history of the world. Uh, Obadiah is written uh, specifically to Edom, which we talked about last week was who? Which one of the two brothers? Esau, right? So we got Jacob and Esau. Jacob is what country? It's Israel, and Esau is Edom. Uh, they did not get along. Let's see, historically they would have been, where would they have been? They'd have been right, right here. Uh, they did not get along back here. They still were not getting along right here, and 2,000 years later, they are still not getting along. So there's a tremendous amount of animosity between these two families. Uh, And we see God's judgment against Edom uh, in the book of Obadiah. Now, if you think about, let's just put yourself in Obadiah's space for just a second. So if you've read Obadiah, you know this is not good news to Edom. And he is called to go and say these words to a nation that has not gotten along with your nation for several hundred years. So what's a nation we have not gotten along with for a while? Just pick one. Iran, Russia, right? Okay, so God calls you to be a prophet, to go to Iran or Russia and speak against them. How do you think that is going to go for you? That will go poorly, right? Uh, So when, when we hear Obadiah say these words that God has told him to say, 
just put yourself in his spot for a second and think through, you know, what does that actually look like? Um, I did put a uh, one idea of a helpful structure, I think, for uh, that green text at the top of your handout. That comes from this book, The Minor Prophets by McKimiskey. Uh, um, it's a very helpful book. Um, the, this, is all the, this is a commentary on all the Minor Prophets, not just Obadiah. No. <laughs> That's awesome. Nobody wrote this much about Obadiah. The most technical, detailed commentaries out there about Obadiah are like 40 pages long. So it's a fantastic book to study because there's just, you can't get overwhelmed in resources. But if you, if you look at the, the sections here, that section three is the speech by the judge. This is God speaking. And the first uh, verses two through nine are the sentences that God pronounces. And then uh, pronouncements of guilt, verses 10 through 14. Then a sentence of all the nations. And what we're going to look at today is verses 10 through 16. So these pronouncements of guilt and the sentence of the nations. And then next week, we'll look at the promise of restoration. Now, uh, there was a name that I try to mention every single Sunday when I teach that I did not mention last week. I don't think his name came up at all last week. And that was actually on purpose, which is very rare for me. So whose name did I not mention last week? Did not mention Jesus last week. And I kept waiting for somebody to say, where is Jesus in Obadiah? Because if you've been here at Stuart Heights for more than six months, you've heard Gary do his, where is Jesus in all these, right? And where, he, where is he in these books? Um, so I'm going to read through Obadiah, and I want you to be specifically listening for where is Jesus. Because I am convinced he is there. All right. You found Obadiah? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh yeah, I was supposed to look. Okay, great. Here we go. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me to the, down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then you, your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance 
in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I have a hard time reading Obadiah without getting into my deep judgment voice because there's just so much of that it's easy to do, right? Um, so forgive me if I got a little animated as we go through and we read. All right, so Bible study is about asking and answering questions about the text. So um, any literary or structural observations? And I've, I've given you a couple as kind of starters there. The first one you might remember from last week. <clears throat> Anybody remember the first bullet? Synonymous. Go back to geometry. High school geometry. Parallelism, yes. Parallelism. That's right. So this is a, a feature of Hebrew poetry. Remember, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme with sound. Uh, Hebrew poetry rhymes with meaning. Um, So where would be a example of parallelism? I even put it in your notes. Go back and look at verses 12 through 14. Do you see any parallelism there? Look at verse 12. You should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Or you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. These ideas of these are, these are negative, these are negative, these are negative, these are negative. This is also, uh, th this kind of uh, parallelism, this synonymous parallelism where things are going the same direction is a very helpful tool for us in interpreting Scripture because sometimes we will read Old Testament poetry and we will go, I have no idea what that second part of that line means. And generally, it's one of two things. It's generally in the exact same direction or in the opposite direction. So it's either synonymous parallelism, they're both lines going the same way, or antithetical parallelism, where one line goes this way and one line goes this way. Um, look at verse 13. Uh, there's a pun in Obadiah 1.13. That's your second bullet point there. You're like, there's puns in the Bible? Oh, yes. There's gobs of them. Now, so somebody tell me what a pun is. Play on words when words sound similar to something else, right? All right. So, the the good guys in Obadiah are what country? Israel, and the bad guys are 
Edom. How do you spell Edom? E-D-O-M, right. The word for disaster or calamity in verse 13 is Edom, E-D-A-M. So God is saying, your name and disaster or calamity are very, very similar. There's a lot of poetical uh, devices going on here in Obadiah. And then in verse 16, uh, what do you think is happening in verse 16? So as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. A little bit of irony there. Right? So Edom drank there in triumph, but the nations are drinking the cup of divine wrath that is coming. So I'm going to take the spot where you celebrated, and we're going to judge the nations on that spot, which is, oh, maybe we shouldn't have like partied there. That probably wasn't a good idea. So a lot of these uh, literary devices going on in Obadiah, and you can see these just over and over and over all through the Old Testament prophets in these poetical sections. All right, so before I go through and we talk about what the words mean, I think I gave you almost everything that's in my notes for what are the words mean. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think back to our study in Romans, because we did this same kind of a structure where we got to the, what do the words mean? And then I've got the red letters are the text of Scripture, and then the black letters are these expanded definitions. And I want you to look at these expanded definitions for a second and tell me, are these definitions of words generally longer, shorter, or about the same length as the definitions that we saw in Romans? What do you feel like? Your gut says what? Your gut says longer, that's right. Now, there's a reason for this. There are a lot more uh, Greek words that are used in the New Testament than there are Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew words have to have, uh, they don't have to have, they just do, much more flexibility in their meaning. They cover a broader range of definition than the Greek words were. Many times when we would look in Romans, we would see a word and it would mean like the exact word that it was translated in English or one or two other definitions. But I want, to, I want you to flip over to look at verse... Um, you to look at verse... There we go. Verse 13. Indeed, uh, you should not have gazed on their affliction. Look at all the different definitions that this word affliction could have in Hebrew. I mean, this is, is a very broad set of terms. So then I want you to take and look in your English Bible and see if you can find your English word in this big, broad set of words. And tell me what you find. Did you find your English word in there? Or something extraordinarily close? Something pretty close? Yeah. <clears throat> so think about this, the challenge that our English translators have to have, I've got broad set of definitions next to another word with a broad set of definitions next to another word with a broad set of definitions next to another word with a broad set of definitions. This is one of the reasons why when you read different English translations of the Bible, they look and they sound differently. And, and that's okay. Because these words are not just flat, one-dimensional things. They are rich, full things. Now, what you, you didn't notice that affliction also has the meaning of the word love, right? So that they're not elastic 
infinitely. They have boundaries around them. All of these words are kind of in the same space, but they're broader than we think sometimes. You with me so far? This is yes? Yes? Okay. All right. So let's go back to verse 10, and we'll read through some of these, and I'll I'll pull out some of the stuff that's going to be probably helpful for us to understand what's going on here. So so if you want to, in your notes, kind of keep an eye on the... the outline back at the top of your handout. Uh, so we're going to talk about these. We've talked about those three sentences, and today is the first pronouncement, the second pronouncement, the third pronouncement, and then the sentence of the nations. So this first pronouncement in verse 10, for violence or, or wrong or cruelty or damage, uh, for oppression against your brother Jacob. And remember, Jacob, was he the firstborn or the secondborn? Secondborn, right? He's the heel catcher. He's the one that grabbed a hold of the heel and I'm going to chase you down. And it was really symbolic of the rest of his life. I'm going to chase you down and I'm going to be nagging here. This heel catcher shall shame, shall cover or fill up for clothing or secrecy you. And you shall be cut off. And this is the same word used earlier in verse 9. To be cut down or consumed or, or chewed up forever. Now, if, if a prophet comes to your country and says you will be chewed up forever... How you feeling about this fella? Not feeling very good about this fella, right? So automatically, his listeners are going to be like, whoop, nope, I don't like you. I'm going to tune you out. So, so if somebody starts to tune you out, you've got a couple communication avenues. You can like, just stop talking, or you can ramp it up. Uh, in the day that you stood on the other side, or over against, in the day that strangers or foreigners carried captive or transported away into captivity his forces. So if, if we look at the history of the Old Testament and we talk about in the day that strangers carried away captive something into captivity, this sounds an awful lot like the Babylonian exile. Now, the question comes, is Obadiah looking forward and talking about these events as if they are so firmly going to occur that he refers to them in the past tense? Or is he a year or two into the Babylonian exile looking backward and saying, you guys just messed up, this is a real problem. I I don't know that it matters either way, but I just want you to understand there's some some range in interpretation there. So carried away his forces. When foreigners, when these non-relatives, when these different people, these aliens entered his gates, these uh, openings in the city, and cast or handled or thrown lots for Jerusalem. So... Imagine this, so somebody comes into your country and they, they're casting lots for who gets this section and who gets this section and who gets this section. The thing that you worked for your whole life to build, somebody's just going to raffle away. It's pretty hard. It's hurtful language. This is intensely personal language. Even you were as one of them, but you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. In the day of his captivity, the same verse used in verse 11, nor should you have rejoiced or brightened up or become merry or glad over the children of Judah. This is one of the tribes of Israel. In the day of their destruction, in the day of their wandering, in the day of their losing themselves, being utterly undone. Nor should you have spoken proudly or to be twisted or boasted up uh, to magnify yourself, to promote yourself. Uh, the last definition there is the tower. It's like, I'm, I'm it. I should not have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Um, this is tightness or trouble. Uh, the word literally means a female rival. And some of you are aware that in the Old Testament, 
there were uh, periods of time where certain men had more than one wife. Uh, this is the word for the second wife. How do you think those relations are going there? <laughs> right? Anybody want to share that? Nobody wants to share that. No. In the day of distress, in the day you took a second wife, the rival wife, this is the distress that is going to come because of the pride that was there. So they are watching all these things take place. Now, I've got a question to ask you about your homework that I asked you to do last week. Did anybody watch the, uh, the Bible video that I suggested that you watch? Anybody watch that? Did you find that helpful? Understanding kind of what's going on with it. Oh, yeah. There's actually a picture of Edom, the nation of Edom, standing kind of on the edge and watching the Babylonians go take the Israelites away and drag them off into captivity. And Edom did not step in to assist. They just watched from their high place. Remember, they were up on the mountains. They watched from their high place, and they said, well, it's not us. That's them. We, we have some resources we could intervene, but we're going to let this country fall. Verse 13, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity, their bending oppression, their misfortune, their ruin. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction, this evil, this adversity in the day of their calamity. You'll see this repetition uh, that's happening. Uh, Nor laid hands on them to, to cast out their substance, their forces. It could be anything from your army to your wealth to what you value. In the day of their calamity. So how many times is calamity mentioned in verse 13? Three. What do we call that when something is said more than once? Repetition. This is another literary device that Obadiah is using here. So who are the Edomites behaving like? They're behaving like allies of the Babylonians, right? That are going to come in and take the Israelites away. And in something that's very important to understand in the in the history of the world, when, when God raises up kingdoms and lowers kingdoms and raises up kingdoms and lowers kingdoms, he does so for a reason. And he gives many times other nations opportunities to align themselves or misalign themselves with those that work against God's people. And those nations that stand with nations who do harm to God's people are always judged. It's not a, well, most of the time you're going to... Nope. Every single time this occurs. Every single time this occurs. So I think the Edomites are behaving like Babylonians, which is not good. Because is Babylon still in charge of the world? They're not, are they? Imagine that. Virtually every kingdom in the Bible that is mentioned is not still around, except for one. There's one that's still around, and that one's going to stick around, and that's good. Uh, Piper has a quote uh, that all the presidents of the history of the United States will be but footnotes in the history of the kingdom of God. Like, I like that. That's pretty good. Keeps us in perspective. Verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads, the, the fork in the road to cut off, to destroy those among them who escaped. Because there were some, there were some that got away from the Babylonian exile. And what did the Edomites do? The Edomites waited for them and pounced on them. And you're like, you waited until they were weak, they were beaten down, they were being drug out, and then you attacked. Yep. This is 
horrible, horrible behavior. Verse 14, nor should you have delivered up or surrendered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. You see this distress and this calamity theme that's just pounding over and over and over? We're going to flip that here in a second because that distress and calamity is going to get flipped back over onto Edom. So now, verse 15. So what happens in verse 15, Josh? It changes. What changes? Right. And, and this, is ha- this happens a lot in Bible prophecy. This happens an awful lot. Where we're, we're going from this, this one example, this one example, this one example, this one example to... Whoop, now I'm talking about everybody who behaves this way, right? Which I think is interesting because Paul does a lot of the same stuff in Romans. He'll talk about this theme, this theme, this theme, and then he'll go into this example, this example, this example, this example, which is actually an inverted view of the way the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. So verse 15, For the day of the Lord, Jehovah, upon all the nations, upon all the foreigners, upon all the... Remember this word from last week, these flight of locusts is near. They're, they're approaching. They're, they're short around us. As you have done or made it, it shall be done or made to you. Your reprisal, your requital, your, your deserving shall return or turn back or retreat on your own head. So who does this sound like? Does this sound like anybody's message in the New Testament? I think it sounds like Jesus in Matthew 7. I think it sounds like Paul in Romans 2. This, you, you do these evil things and this is going to be returned back. Right, this, Galatians 6, 7. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. What were they sowing? They were sowing calamity. They were sowing distress. They were sowing oppression. They were sowing evil against God's people. And what do they reap? It shall be returned to your own head. Verse 16, for as you drank, or as you uh, banqueted, it's, it's almost the idea of celebrated on my holy mountain. So <laughs> how did Edom feel about their high place that they lived? They were very proud of this high place, right? But they forgot that the earth is the Lord. And he owns all these things. And so who, whose mountain actually is it? Oh, it's God's mountain. Dang it, we forgot that. We partied and reveled on God's mountain against God's people, and God's going to come back and get his mountain. So as you drank on my mountain, my holy mountain, so shall all the nations. So now we, the same word used in Obadiah 1 and uh, verse 2 and verse 15, these foreigners drink continually in perpetuity. And uh, if you read much Old Testament, you'll know that... Uh, Wine uh, and drinking sometimes is synonymous with the wrath of God being poured out. There's, there's vengeance and judgment being poured out. Uh, so this, especially in Isaiah and Psalms, just over and over and over these are mentioned. Yes, these other nations shall drink and shall swallow up, and they shall be as though they had never been. Fun passage, huh? Are you excited to study this? All right, so last week I asked you what the most repeated word was in last week's text, in verses 1 through 9. Anybody remember what it was? You, 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 over and over and over. Now, it's actually the same most repeated word in this week's text, but there's another one. The second most repeated word is what? Yom, right? Which is, it should be italicized. This is my error in the handout today, so if you want to fix it to be italicized, then feel free to do so. Uh, but yom means what? 
Yom is the Hebrew word for what English word? Day, yes, very good. It's the word day. Did you hear the word day mentioned a few times? Yes, in the day of their calamity, in the day of their distress, in the day of their calamity. And then this day is coming, right? And there's one more that's really important here, and it's the word nor. N-O-R, nor. And this shows up uh, several different times because the, the Hebrew is very interesting. It, it just There's a lot fewer words in Hebrew than there are in English. Um, it's no gazing, no rejoicing, no priding, no, enter, no entering, no gazing, no laying hands, no standing, no delivering. It's just all these no, 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 over and over and over again. So it's a very direct message talking about days and warning them that they should not have either past tense or should not in the future do these particular things. So let's, let's talk for a second about what's the point. All right, so application number one, the day is coming. It is coming. Uh, and I'm not talking about the days mentioned in Obadiah verses 1 through 14. I'm talking about the day mentioned in Obadiah 1, 15. Because the day mentioned before Obadiah 1.15 are either prophecies of what Edom was going to do in the future, if you think Obadiah is pre-exilic, or what they just did. But Obadiah 1.15, do you remember the mountain picture that I showed you last week? The, there's ranges, and the prophet's not exactly sure when this is going to happen, but there's something off into the future. Well, Obadiah has no idea when this particular day is going to come, when all the nations... The day of the Lord upon all the nations is going to occur, but it is going to occur. So if I know something is going to occur that is going to impact me, what should I do? Prepare. Right, that's exactly right. Personalize number one. What do we do with that? We prepare. So what would be a good thing to do to prepare for the judgment of God? Now, before you answer, I'm going to go back to about... 20 minutes ago, I asked you a very specific question, and I specifically ignored the answer to that question. What was the question that I asked you? Where is Jesus? So you heard me read Obadiah. Did you hear the word Jesus come up? No. Where is Jesus? He's the Savior who was judged in our place so that we do not have to take the judgment of God. This is good. So the believer looks and reads Obadiah and says, thank you, Jesus. Because I have to be judged. Like, I, I, I have to be judged. And Jesus can take my judgment, or I can take my judgment. And I am thankful Jesus takes my judgment. Right? So... The day is coming, so what do we do with that? We prepare. So application number two, I think some should fear. Actually, change that. That's not good. Change some in number two to all. Even the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. All should fear. So we as believers should share the news that Jesus took the judgment for us so that we do not have to fear. And then application number three, some should not fear. Hi, my name is Jim. 
I am not fearful of the judgment of God. Which is a rather extraordinarily bold statement to say. I mean, that's, that, is, that is borderline arrogant and cocky. But I can say that because Jesus took my judgment. My faith is in the complete, not the mostly complete, not the partially complete, not the 99.9% .9 complete, but the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to take my place. So what do I do with that? Number three is rejoice. The message of Obadiah is a good news message for the believer. And if you don't believe me, just look at the very last line. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Even in this definitively judgmental text, God is on his throne. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. And God will be just and right in all that he does. Now, uh, as I was reading through this text, you still got one more blank, so don't put your stuff up yet. <laughs> um, there's actually a word that goes there too, so it's not, I'm just not just messing with you. You guys that have heard me speak in the sanctuary, you know that the last blank on every single handout that I ever teach in the sanctuary is nothing. Like nothing goes there. Just so that people will not zip up their Bibles and put everything away. And it drives people absolutely up the wall. I do not care. You will stay glued with me to the very last word. It is wonderfully, wonderfully evil thing that I do. Um, but all the commentators and all the sermons and all the everything that I listened to this week talked about how there was comparisons between the story in Obadiah and a parable that Jesus told, whoops, a parable that Jesus told in the New Testament. And the parable was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the idea is the priest comes by, sees somebody in need, and walks around, right? And the, the Levite comes by and sees somebody in need, and I don't want to get too close, walk around. And the Samaritan walks by and gets his hands dirty. Right? And, and what, did, what did Edom have the opportunity to do? They had the opportunity to engage when God's people needed help and they didn't and they get judged for it. Just something to think about. So next week's text, I honestly wasn't going to go anywhere with that. I just wanted you all to be aware of this is what everybody goes to. Next week's text is verses 17 through 21. So we're going to finish a book of the Bible in three weeks. This is incredible. This is like light speed for me. Uh, our homework there, ask the Holy Spirit for help. Read next week's text. Talk to somebody about next week's text. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, you can do so at uh, facebook.com slash ourSundaySchool. This is when you're on the page with the big Bible, that's where we want to talk about the Bible. When you're on the page with Jim's big head, uh, that's where we share prayer requests. Okay? Uh, and then uh, you can share those insights uh, and questions that you have uh, and then invite a member or non-member. All right, so extra credit. This one should be pretty basic. Right. What do you think goes in the blank? Jesus goes in the blank. Absolutely, yes. Thank God for the judgment Jesus saves God's children from because he took my judgment. And if you are walking around worried and scared about God's judgment, there is a better way to live. And it is living in the light of the cross. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So that's Obadiah week two. Thank you for coming to Sunday school today. You've got a handout on your table. 
Uh, it's got a blue stripe across the top, this weekly update. So make sure you're aware of the prayer requests on there. If you've got any new prayer requests, you can share those over on the left-hand side. Uh, and then make sure your name is at the bottom uh, so that we can get good attendance for today. Next week, we finish Obadiah. So thanks for coming today, guys. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.